0: All right, well, let's get into our lesson for today. We're in Genesis 9, and we'll be moving, hopefully, into uh, Genesis 10. But you never know how things roll in uh, here, or you, don't, you know exactly how things roll in here. So we'll start at verse... Uh, verse. Uh, I put verse 3 back up there just to give us a little sense of context of what, uh, what's happened. Now, remember, the flood is, is all done. Noah and his family are, are uh, out on dry ground. And so then, God is 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 uh, giving to them the provision not only of the land and the ground, but then also other provision by which that life can be sustained, namely theirs. And so He puts in place some some restrictions, if you will, or some some uh, commands regarding the value of life, and then what is uh, the relationship that we as human beings have to that life. So. In verse three, he said, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. And so the, the principle there is that, that God is giving, because God is the giver in that sense, he is still the master, he is still the owner, he is still the creator, And if he is all those things for us, who are the receivers of what it is that he offers, then what our role is, is that we are stewards. And so we've been talking a little bit about that in terms of what is the difference between being the master or owner of something versus the steward of something. And that's an important distinction. Because if if we forget that we are the stewards, then we start to think that the world is all about us. The world is not all about us. We are the stewards. We are entrusted with the care of those things that God has provided us with, but we're not the one that made it. We didn't have anything to do with it coming into the world. And, and if we lose track of that, then we sort of get, a, a get too big for ourselves. Yes, sir. i right. I'm sure it means something. rank has its privileges rank has its privileges I'm guessing that's a uh, a uh, military learned uh, sort of uh, acronym right rank has its privileges so God's at the top of the heap right he's got the ultimate privilege but we as stewards then are entrusted with the responsibility that Adam was given in the garden. Remember that responsibility. He put he, God made the garden. He said, "Okay, it's all yours, but what, what I'm placing you in the garden to do is what to work and take care of it. That's what a steward does. Okay, that's what a steward does. So then he, so then in verse six, what what God is doing now is he's, he's sort of laying out what how how life under him as a steward would be and so what had already occurred in verse 4 and 5 was he had talked about the earth and the ground he had talked about the value of the life of animals and now what he does in verse 6 he says whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for it in the image of god has god made mankind As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase on it. So notice what God does is he places a value on each of what his creation is. And he says to us, we are stewards of that life. So we are stewards of the ground. We are stewards of the environment. We're stewards of the earth and the universe to some degree. We're also stewards of the life of animals, okay? How many of you are animal lovers? See, I knew this is a class for you if you're an animal lover, all right? Yes, Um, and and even cats, right? Even cats? (laughs) Especially cats, I know. You know, I tease about that, but I am part of the Fort Worth chapter of the Secrets of Cat Society. So just just to let you know, there are ch- different chapters around our area, and uh, I'm in that one. Uh, my wife's the chairman of it, but I'm actually in it too. So we we love animals. We care for animals. We, we certainly can domesticate animals. We can tame them. We can do all those things, but we do value them in terms of, of uh, God's creation of which we are a steward. And then human life is is also of highest value, and how we know that is, is that God does reserve this extra aspect of it in terms of the, the restriction of uh, shedding human blood, all right? And so again, notice that, that what God is doing, he takes into account the fact that we are still evil by nature, and that was one of, the, one of the phrases that came before in some of the verses that, you know, here I'm going to do all of this for you, even though I know that humans are evil by nature. Their inclinations are evil by nature from childhood. What God says, though, about humans that is different from animals and from the earth is he says, for in the image of God, God made mankind. Um there are tons of opinions and commentaries all about in terms of what does that mean, the image of God. So I can present to you the sort of Orthodox Lutheran view of that, and then you can run with that in whatever way you want to. But the image of God, at least in our Orthodox Lutheran uh, uh, tradition, is that um, that was the perfection in righteousness and holiness in which Adam and Eve were created, okay? And in that sense, all human beings share in that. The problem is, is that because of the sin of Adam and Eve, that perfection, that holiness, and that righteousness was lost. And it's only restored through faith in Jesus, all right? Having said that, it's still... Suggests that God has a high, the highest value that he places on life has to do with human life. And so when you think about it from that perspective, what evidence do we have or what indication do we have that God would value human life above all other life? Pardon? Pardon? Humans have that. That's a, a byproduct of that high value that God places on life. But but what indication do I, we all know this? Maybe we're just not linking the two. How do you know that God values you as a human being above all other life? Well, we are created in his image, but again, what is it that that see that image was lost through sin? So God says, Well, rather than have you spend the rest of your life in this life and in eternity in sin, having lost that image, I'm going to restore that image for you. How? Through, Through baptism in Jesus Christ. See, at, at the end of the day, it's, it's Jesus is the, is the way back to the restoration of that image of God. That's how that, ha- that's how that comes back to us, Right. And so bapti- what does baptism do? Baptism is the application of water and the word to be the assurance of that which Jesus did for us. Okay? But, it, but, it, but the point is, is that human life is of the highest value to God. It's not to say that these other things don't matter, but this is the one that matters the most. For whom did Jesus die? people. Yes, only for Tom. Yes, Tom. Yes, especially for Tom. Yes. That's right. That's right. So, you know, one of the questions that we want to be able to ask ourselves with respect to human life. And I just throw this in there as a as kind of a question that given the stewardship of life which God has entrusted to us, you know, how do we as Christians deal with the fact that there are some Situations in life in which the taking of life is called for, not necessarily wanted but it 's it's, it's called for when you think in terms of the times when government has to step in and take life, thinking of a justified war, for example, or thinking of perhaps um, capital, puni- capital punishment, something like that, see what I, I think there is room for us as Christians. As people of conscience, to really struggle with that—that that there is, on the one hand, this highest value of life that God places on 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 life—and yet at the same time, there's times when the taking of life might be, in fact, necessary. Yeah. Well, and just in this verse here, where it says, uh, "You know, by humans shall their blood be shed," is the creation in the image of God also part of the role of life giver and life taker? I know it's a rabbit hole, but (laughs) when I'm created in God's image, Mm -hmm. part of God's role is Mm -hmm. the giving of life, the creation that God does that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So is that part of the image of God' role in what you're talking about? And I hate to say righteous murder, but (laughs) yeah, I I don't know. Well, it's just it's so where we as Christians struggle a lot of times is when when government has to do something for the sake of protecting everybody else okay so that's kind of the idea of justified war or even with capital punishment where that gets into is the fourth commandment that deals with authority and government and then Romans 13 if you want to look at it biblically uh, talks about that very thing. but the struggle for a lot of us in terms of our feeling about the highest value of life is that even when life has to be taken, we grieve that. See, even if it was a, a necessity in order to protect life, it's like the, uh, what do they call that, With uh, um, when someone is being uh, attacked in their own home and then you have the right to defend yourself. Stand your, is that stand your ground? Uh, yeah, whatever that, I forgot what that's called that we're, we're, it, the taking of that life was necessary to protect one's own life, but in the process of taking that life, it's not like anybody's going, hey, 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 look at me. It's, I feel bad about that. I feel sad about that. Okay, But it's just that in terms of what God provides is a provision that sometimes human life is taken. That does not change the fact that God still valued that life. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's okay as a Christian to have a conscience about those things. It's okay to struggle with those things, right? And that's the tension that we live in as Christians is that sometimes the thing that God values the most has to be taken in order to protect the greater, uh, the greater good. Tim, you have thoughts about that? No, just, I mean, when I joined the Marine Corps, my dad told me, because uh, he was Marine also, said, uh, sometimes, son, good men have to do bad things. Yeah. So it's just yeah. one of the things you have to do sometimes. Sure, yeah. Okay, well, let's go to the next part then, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So just a reminder again that the only human people that are left now is who? Is no one in his family. Is anybody else? Okay. And so that's a sort of a reaffirmation of that, okay? But notice again, it's an unconditional agreement. We've talked about the different kinds of covenants that there are uh, biblically. There's the unconditional ones, and then there's the conditional ones. Who remembers the difference? Remember, Carl, what was the difference? Uh, Yeah, as long as you keep my, my rules, I'll be with you. Uh, that would be the conditional one, right? And, and it's not that I will be with you. It's the blessings of that covenant will be will be yours, or they won't be yours. So if you don't hold up your end, then you're saying to me you don't want to be a part of the covenant anyway. That's that's conditional. Me, I'll be with you again. Yeah, that's right. God will be with you. It's just whether or not it's to your blessing or to your curse. You know, if you want to think of it that way. But the unconditional covenant was. Was that then God said, in spite of your disobedience, which I already know you're going to do, I'm still going to fulfill my end of it, right? And so when he says, never again will I bring about a, a destruction of the earth uh, via a flood, that's an, that's an unconditional covenant. He's saying, I, I know uh, people are not uh, going to hold up their end, but I will hold up my end, okay? So a lot like grace. It sounds like grace, doesn't it? Yeah, the unconditional nature of that sure does. And God said, verse 12, This is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and a rainbow appears in the clouds... I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So why does God need help remembering something. Well, he doesn't. We're happy about that, right? Well, then why does he need... Why? What's the point of the rainbow then? Well, it certainly is for us to remember, okay? So what do you think of when you see a rainbow up in the sky? Do what? I'm looking for the pot of gold. Yeah, that's right. I always think of that. There it is coming down. All right, yeah. But it, but again, the idea of a rainbow. What does God do? He says this is. And you think about it, well, how how are rainbows? How do they come into being? What it what is it that causes a rainbow to happen? You got you got the light from behind. If it, if the rainbow's out there, it's from behind, shining on the water droplets right in the clouds, and then that creates the prism, which is the uh, color. So. You know, okay, we've scientifically now destroyed the miracle of how a uh, rainbow happens, right? But actually, the beauty of it is, is that it is a way for us to remember God's promises. But it is interesting that what God says here is that when I see the rainbow, I will remember my covenant. So that word remember is the key word, and we've already kind of talked about that a little bit where the word itself in the Hebrew means keep in mind. Keep in mind, right? It's important for God to keep in mind His grace given the evil inclinations of His creation. It's important for us to keep in mind the wonderful, the wonderful gift that God's grace is given our own evil inclinations as well as the evil inclinations of the world around us. Okay, we talked about that a little bit before. When you think in terms of how much exposure or let me say it differently, how much we expose ourselves to what's going on in the world around us in terms of media, in terms of of hearing about stuff, in, in terms of seeing stuff. Right. If you if you were to if you were to break that down in terms of hours of the day, for example. Okay, How many hours of the day do we spend um, immersing ourselves in the stresses and struggles and troubles and, and, and controversies and conflicts and, and disagreements, all that stuff going on in the world around us, compared to the amount of time that we spend in God's Word? Anybody want to confess their sin here this morning? least of all me. Yeah. Right? I mean, isn't that, the, isn't that the case? And so when we, when we immerse ourselves in basically what is the negativity of the world and the hopelessness of the world, and then we spend very little time and very little energy spending in talking about and learning about and, and, and meditating on the beauty of God's Word, no wonder people are kind of crushed under the burden of that, Right? And so it's important for us to be able to do that as well so that we remember. Otherwise, we don't remember, and then that uh, negatively affects our lives as well. Okay, any thoughts about that? Yes, ma'am. Well, I'm I'm really sad because of what's happened with the rainbow that it's been hijacked to represent something completely different in our time today. I think sometimes that happens. Symbols. Kind of can take on new meaning depending on what people do with it, right? And there's no question now we're kind of in the pride month, if you will. And that in and um, of itself, hmm? right? They use the word pride. Oh, sure, but yeah. That's totally in God's face. It's just like. Well, it is. And, but at the same time, we kind of let that happen, don't we? Yeah, yeah. So, see, to a certain degree, if, if something becomes popular and something becomes something that represents something for certain groups, right, and the Christians don't say much, well, then guess what? That will become the norm, right? Now, what, what would saying much have to do with nowadays, if you say much, you're going to get creamed, right? So there's a cost there, right? There's a cost there. And how you say it makes a difference. What you say makes a difference, all those kinds of things. But it's a symbol, all right? It's a symbol. What God's going to do with that, I have no idea in terms of the uh, appropriation of that symbol. You know, there's uh, what's the uh, popular phrase that oftentimes you're accused of called cultural appropri... What is that? What is that? I need somebody younger to explain that to me. Yeah. Yeah. What is that? So that is a term that would be used when, let's say, a group or a culture or a race, you know, whatever group uh, might have a certain culture. Maybe it's about food that you eat or a tradition that you do. Mm-hmm. And if another group that is not within work group takes on that, yeah. well, normally it's, it's more in a way to celebrate it, I think, like eating Chinese food. Eating Chinese before, food, yeah. not being Chinese and owning a Chinese restaurant. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, that's called cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation. Cultural appreciation. I like that better. Let's go with that term. That's a way better word. Appropriation is the negative term. That's a negative term. So if you take on, if, um, if I take on somebody else's cultural um, symbol or something and claim it to be mine or at least show it to be mine then that's negative, That's that there's an accusation of cultural appropriation, okay? In in some sense of it, perhaps what has happened is biblical appropriation of things, right? Because you could use that, you could make that case with the rainbow, now having uh, been something that represents uh, uh, the gay community and all of that, okay? Yes, ma'am? that but the cross that's now just oh I'm not religious it's just a fashion accessory oh the cross is now a fashion yeah. accessory for many people it is yeah it, it's, it's been robbed of its meaning or voided of its meaning in many ways the cross is interestingly enough that was uh, uh, biblically appropriated even back in Paul's day when the cross was viewed as something uh, to be ashamed of as opposed to something for us to celebrate. So it's really, I guess that's been going on for, uh, for a long time, Gosh. right? Um, and so then what do we do with it? That's always the question. Okay? All right, well, let's keep on going. So in verse 17, so God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over, all the earth, over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth, took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. Any thoughts about that? A very interesting little interlude here, isn't it? Yeah. We went from G-rated in this now, a sudden this, well, probably GP these days. In my day it would have been x-rated, but uh, alright, so what do we make of this? I looked this up because I didn't know either. Okay? And the commentaries are as wide as you can be in terms of the range of the interpretation of what to do this with this. So I'm going to give you the range. Okay? Because it's based on the Hebrew word for lay uncovered. Okay? So here's the range. The range of this is that on the one hand, in the mildest form, that what this was was an issue of respect. And that in, in Old Testament days, when, a, when a, a child of a parent saw the parent's nakedness and what they did with that in their minds, that was a respect issue. And so if that if that was seen then that was seen as disrespect, which would help us understand a little bit of the difference between uh, Ham's response versus Shem and Japheth. Because what is it Japheth and and Shem do? Is they're not going to look at their father's nakedness. They'll put the, the shawl over their eyes, they'll walk backwards, and then they just kind of do like this In order to cover it. So that's the one, that's the one, that's the mild form of what the commentaries are saying about lay uncovered. All right? Now, the extreme form to the other side, all right, is that that word, that Hebrew word, implies an incestuous sexual act. Something way bigger, way more serious and we're not told which one it is. But it sort of suggests the more serious side of it when we look and see what happens in terms of Noah's reaction and what Noah's response is toward Ham as opposed to Shem and Japheth. Okay, So look down at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine, and found out what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. The key phrase there is what the youngest son had done to him. Suggests that there was something way more um, uh, disturbing here than just simply the idea of disrespect. But again, and it would have been disrespectful either way. But, but we're not told which one it is. Okay, So this is one of these um, sordid stories in the Bible, which again, the Bible is pretty frank when it comes to describing the low places that people go, even people who are included in the covenant. The Bible doesn't... It doesn't like, you know, whitewash stuff and just say, Oh yeah, bad, bad. It it really kind of goes into this. Okay, so any thoughts about this? Do you feel better now knowing what the range of it is? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's just it's pretty pretty bad news stuff. Okay? All right, so he sa- he also said Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. So, so with a blessing. Remember, always with biblical blessings, particularly Old Testament, there was a an aspect of it was picturing their future. Okay, that's the idea here. And so, um, so the picture anyway that uh, Noah places before his sons is that Canaan will be the slave to all of them okay any thoughts about that all right well let's keep going so after the flood Noah lived 350 years so he lived a total of 950 years and uh, and then he died now who would like to read <laughs> So I'm not really interested in reading all of these unless someone is just dying to hear all of the names, all right? But the Bible is really big into, particularly Old Testament, it's really big into genealogies. For what purpose? And let's sort of talk about it at that level. What would be the purpose, do you think, of the Bible, including uh, the genealogies, particularly of Noah? Uh, but we also see it in other places in the Bible. Verifies history. Pardon? Verifies history. Yeah. So it verifies these are real people lived at a real time that kind of thing, and tracing the lineage. Remember, because again, part of the lineage of Jesus comes out of the lineage of David, right? And then David comes out of the lineage of Shem. So there is this 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 story of salvation is that it comes out of the real the real experiences and life experiences of of real people but that God's hand is at work even through all of these and that's the thing that we always want to take with us as well is that God it doesn't matter it's not that it's unimportant what's going on in the world but what's going on in the world is the context in which God's hand is at work and sometimes we forget that Sometimes our assumption is God has left the building and then we think, oh yeah, things are going to you know what in handbasket and so where's God when we need him? God is here. God is doing exactly what God does. Okay, Any? are there any of those names that jump off the page for you that you want to visit about, want to talk about? Yes, Carl. When we were at the uh, Creation Museum, Yeah. One of the interesting things they did was Scripture not only gives the names, but the lifespans. That's right. And they took the lifespans and added those all together, and they, came, of course, came up with 6,000 years to Adam. Yeah. Therefore, they're saying the earth was only 6,000 years old. That's the young earth theory. Yes. That's what and that Adam, is. You know, but Adam was there on the seventh day. Right. What was all those other days about in God's time? Well, I mean, you know, God's—I know here we can get into that now. Well, God's time, our time, twenty-four hours at heaven. You know, we could do that. But again, traditionally, Lutherans have said—at least traditionally—have said that um, the young Earth isn't. We don't hold anybody in our uh, church body to the idea that you have to believe in young Earth or old Earth. It's just sort of implied that the 24 hours that are mentioned in Genesis were, were that, that was one day, evening, morning, 24 hours. So so we don't have an issue with that. Um, but the, I always like to ask the question, how old were things when he got around to creating the first day, right? So that's a, a little bit of a question that I asked. The other thing with respect to the ages of people uh, and the number of years that they live um, some of them overlap each other so I don't know exactly how you uh, how you gauge that part of it um, but I will say this people that hold to the young earth theory really run amok with people that are more uh, geology uh, based or science based um, they look at people that do the that, because they hold to the older theory um, that then you run into Uh, Well, what are you going to do with that in terms of science and geology? Okay, and we—that might be an interesting uh, topic to cover someday in here for one of you to lead. Okay, because I am not—I am not a geology guy. I'm not a science guy. So, yeah. Which part of young Earth or old Earth impacts my salvation? None. Well, I know. And so that becomes the other part of it is, is that is it really germane to my getting to heaven? Okay? Now, you can extra- You could extrapolate from it that how do you know you're going to go to heaven? God said so. Where? It's in the Bible. So if you start whittling away at the Bible, then how do you know that that part of the Bible is true if these other parts maybe aren't? So that becomes that argument, okay? And traditional Lutherans have looked at that and said, if you start nicking away at the Bible and say, well, this couldn't be that because it has to be that, science says this, etc., then you can open the door for the idea that I would doubt the Bible. And if I start doubting the Bible, now I'm going to start doubting other things in the Bible, including like the virgin birth and resurrection and things like that. Okay? Yeah? But some of us believe. That science is a direct attack on the Bible. I mean, some of us believe that science is a direct attack on the Bible. Okay, some people do. People can come up with all these theories, and they want you to believe that they know, but it's not true. We have to look at the Bible as the truth. Mm-hmm. And then you don't doubt those things. You yeah. the scientists. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, again, I would sort of argue with the fact that we're living. we live in the tension between the two. That's where we live so we the, certainly the Bible is gosh it is the truth right but the Bible doesn't answer every single scientific question. the Bible says where stuff came from but it doesn't explain to us how it came and so that's the that's the dilemma a lot of times that Christians have and that scientists have with us. I just know that that if we live in the if we live in the polarities of that where each side is looking at the other one and saying you're the problem, you're the enemy right? Then you're not ever really going to get a complete sense of how do we do this together? Okay? How do we do this together? But some do. Some do, right? And some, and I've been around, uh, because I was in campus ministry for uh, quite a number of years, um, been around uh, people that were very science driven who were Christian. Okay? And I always, I love talking to him because I always thought, how do you guys do that? You know, how do you, how do you teach that given what are your traditional uh, Lutheran Christian perspectives? And so uh, one of the best definitions of, not definition of heaven, but one of my good friends who's uh, uh, now retired from the astronomy department as Stephen F., he said that his biggest fear about heaven is that when we get there there won't be anything more to learn. Is't that great? Yeah isn't that great? okay so again it gives a perspective of the idea of science of a value of science it is not necessary to explain things but to learn things and that's a bit of a fluid thing okay so I think we're probably going you and I are going to disagree totally on this, aren't we yeah <laughs> That's all right. That's okay. We can, we can do that in here. We can, No, we can do that in here. We can do that in here. So, so yeah, Bill. Uh, having nothing to do with the discussion of the last time. You're going to bring up something that has nothing to do with our discussion today. Yeah. Bottom of the prior page. Bottom of the prior page. Did Noah live that long? My Noah calls his youngest son Canaan. Why did he, instead of using his name, why did he call him Canaan? Well, again, remember that Moses is writing this a number of years later, looking back on it, okay? And so where does the name Canaan come from? Who actually, we've seen already this name uh, before already. Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? Okay. So the origins, actually the origins of it came from the story of Cain and Abel, right? And so then the curse that was placed on uh, uh, Cain and the fear of, you know, if I go out in the world, somebody's going to kill me, all right? So now what what, uh, Moses, looking back, is saying that Ham became the father of the Canaanites, okay? And that will... um, that will factor in a little bit later in uh, in the word. Okay? It. Um, yeah, go ahead. I'm still confused about him so walking in and seeing his father. Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he didn't intend to walk in. Maybe he's in the Nexus. Canaanites. Are you sympathetic to the Canaanites? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Your heart goes out to the Canaanites. They the wilderness. All those years and slaves and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, they didn't exactly. I mean, they, they were slaves of some, but they were also the masters of some. When we get to the map at the end, you'll see where they all sort of ended up after the Tower of Babel. You know, they all kind of scattered because their languages were the same, and you'll see where they all kind of went. Well, yeah, it kind of was, but again, see, that's what suggests that there was more to it than just walking in and seeing something you shouldn't have seen. That's what suggests that. Okay, but again, we're not given the sorted details of what that is, which is we can kind of just imply. The way that they do this is they look at a that word in the in that language, and then they ask the question: How else is that word used in other? Uh, either places in the Bible or how's that word used in other uh, writings of the day? That's what they do. And they say, okay, that word is used to mean either this or that or whatever's in between. Okay? And then we, what do we do? We infer from that that it must have been something way more than just what they saw. Okay? You could probably do some additional um, research on that if you want, but I I I spent at least two minutes looking this up, <laughs> and you know, doggone it, that two minutes could have been spent doing something else. No. teasing here, but but actually, but it was it was very curious to me too because I thought, wow, that's quite a you know an everlasting curse on somebody um, just given the fact that there was some some sort of minor indiscretion. Apparently, it was not a minor indiscretion. Okay? Any other thoughts? Yeah? yeah. You have uh, said this several times about the tension. Yes, the tension. Yeah. And I think that we need to be more comfortable living in the tension. Mm-hmm. We have this tendency to gravitate to one extreme or the other. Oh yeah, no kidding. And, and uh, you know, we want, we want the world to be black and white. Mm-hmm. You know. I know, because I've written poems about it. Right. living in the gray, Yeah, that's where it is. That's right, living in the gray, yes, <laughs> yes. But you're right, I mean, you really are. Um, uh, it's been very telling uh, of how difficult it is for there to be or anybody to listen to a voice of reason these days, given the fact of the the seeking of the polarity. So if I go to my side then a way that I can justify being in my side is that I can say anybody who disagrees with me is the enemy. And of course then over here is the same thing. So it's just it's very difficult to find anybody who can actually listen objectively and then discern objectively. It's very difficult. It's almost impossible if you're out here. Okay. So that's a really great point, okay? And again, it's not, to neg- it's not to say, oh, everybody over here is bad, everybody over here is bad, and the only place you should be is in the middle. That's not necessarily the place either because sometimes when it comes to the issues of truth and, and salvation and basic stuff that how do I get to heaven, um, it, it kind of is over here, right? But if I go over here, and treat everybody else that's different from me as less than me, then I'm not going to be able to be an effective witness for the truth that I have. Okay? So there's a lot to be said for that. Does that sound right? Um, Does that sound right? For those of you here that are younger than me? Yeah? Okay, good. Thank you. All right. Anything else on the previous page that we uh, slid right over? Okay, very good. All right, so let's... What, well, oh, yeah, here we go. We, we do want to go back to that page, Okay, different page. Good, yeah. Science versus, versus like, faith. Yeah. Theology yeah. Okay. I, I was surprised. I haven't taken history of science course at the view. Yeah. And I expected it to be challenged. And it was a breeze because so many of the early scientists were They were. They saw their, yeah. their investigations and their discoveries mm-hmm. and things as a God-given gift. Yeah. To, to be used. So right. I I'm not sure when, I mean, I'm sure there were church leaders that maybe more on the same level, you know, like the earth no longer being center. Yeah, like everything revolves around, I mean, you know... But, but the, the scientists themselves is, is, in, is encouraging to me how, mm-hmm. how that, that tension was not there as strong as it is now. A lot of them were German and they happened to be Lutheran. No, actually, I mean that was kind of that was the thing to be Lutheran, I guess, but um like Johann Kepler, he was kind of the father of science and his definition of science was thinking God's thoughts after him. Now, isn't that nice? That's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure either uh, if it was the age of rationalism or when, when did the shift start to occur, that then what, a lot of what we have today is uh, antagonistic toward Christianity. That if you're a Christian, then clearly you are not uh, intellectual. And if you're not intellectual then why are we even bothering talking to you because you're just a bunch of fundamentalist Bible thumpers? And that's very derogative language that's used about Christians, but that's the way it is presented, at least in the media around us. Now, maybe that's just the way it's presented, but that's not really the way it's being taught, okay? In some circles, it is. And some of that's that critical theory stuff that we have talked about, okay? The influences of that. Yeah. Speaking of this, science versus... Yeah. Critical. Uh-huh. I knew a very bright rocket scientist one time. You knew a rocket science? Yeah. Oh, that's that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess that would be knowing. Yes. <laughs> biblical knowing. Uh-huh. But he said, I have never found a real discrepancy between science and religion oh okay cool he's it, it to him it all just in perfectly yeah yeah and so i took that i took his word for it because sure. i don't know as much as he did right that's good i like that it makes sense to him. it's nice to hear affirmations like that yeah. and and not only hear the sort of Degraded uh, viewpoint that people have. I think one time he's like he did not believe in religion at all. hmm Could be. He did not believe in God at all. So sometimes people evolve over time, and their views on those things change. Okay, well let's take a look at the last page. I included this nifty little map. I guess we're pretty much agreed that we're not going to go through all the names here, um, and that's. I'm very thankful for that. Thank you. I'm gracious. Uh, you're gracious, but. Uh, this is an interesting little map that I found on uh, on the internet that sort of shows where in sort of modern day the uh, the the sons of uh, and their families where they settled. Okay, so look at Ham mostly was in the area of Egypt and kind of that part of Africa. Cush is is mentioned. Then Shem was more in the area of of Israel. And by the way, that's an important uh, uh, detail because it's through the lineage of Shem that came Israel and Jacob and Abraham and then eventually we get to Jesus. Okay, So that kind of makes sense that that would come out of there. And then Japheth went uh, went to the north and so you got the uh, Black Sea, you got uh, the Balkans, and you got all those kind of areas. So it's kind of interesting to see kind of where people went. And again, they didn't go immediately because and we're going to get to the story of the t- Tower of Babel and then how God confused the languages. And then, then there's this sort of dispersion, this scattering of people. But if you look at it from just that issue of the curse on Ham, who is going to be the slave of all, uh, at least in terms of the history of the relationship of Israel to Egypt, um, the Egyptians did their fair share of enslaving uh, the, uh, the people of Israel. So that I, I think that, that there was this sort of sense of that now slavery was going to certainly be part of, uh, of world history. One of the things that I found, and I have heard this before, that in uh, not in our day and age, but in previous days and ages, is that a, a justification for slavery was based on these verses. That, that Ham, would, Ham and his lineage would become slaves and that that was uh, uh, predicated on, uh, on a biblical sort of command or a biblical sort of curse, if you will. Okay? And so, I, I have heard that now in our day and age being used as an argument against the idea of believing in the Bible or believing in the idea that God is a redemptive, gracious God because here he allowed that sort of thing to occur. And so people would use that then as a reason for not believing in God's word and and not believing in the uh, biblical biblical stories. Again, it it's a bit of a stretch to say that the only thing that Ham did was be a slave because enslavement went on at their hands as well as at the hands of of other people. But for sure, here's where it starts. Okay, here's where it starts. Okay, any thoughts about that? Yeah, don't. You said that God placed value on human life. Yes, God placed value on human life. If, If part of the curse is being a slave, that definition switch because if you're enslaving somebody, doesn't that mean you lower the value of things, life? Yes. So, if God holds humans to the highest level... Yes. Does that mean when he put them, you know, he had them in slavery, is his definition of slavery different from ours? Say that again. Or is his definition of putting humans in slavery different from today's standards? Because if he has such a high value for life... Mm-hmm. High value of life. Why would he put humans demeaning their life as a human because they're slaves? To some, in, in other words, has that definition changed over time? Well, I think you're confusing a little bit the idea that the people did this to each other, not God doing it to them. Okay? God didn't do that to them. That Remember, remember what it is that God said when he... Um, presented the covenant uh, the the rainbow and all that okay he what he's saying is I'm gonna not bring about a flood even though I know that the human race now is has evil inclinations from childhood okay that's talking about the effect of original sin and the fact now that people's natural inclination without God's Uh, without faith in God, or without God's uh, Word working in a person's life, my, my natural inclination is to put myself up here and put you down here. That's how we roll. And so, all through history, that's how people have rolled. Okay? Now, has God allowed it? Yes, He has. Okay? I think always the hope is is that people of God will rise up and say, we're not going to do that. And people of God have done that. You know, a lot of, um, a lot of the movements that came out of anti-slavery, for example, originated from Christians, from, in, uh, from churches. There was a lot of that. But having said that, especially in certain parts of the country, there were also people saying, well, here's a Bible verse saying it, that here are those people They have to be slaves and we get to be masters. So people have all through history taken things out of context that's in the Scripture and then use it to justify a heinous position that they take. Right? Okay. People have evil inclinations. Wow. That's a pretty uh, strong statement, is it not? Uh, The capacity that we have to bring uh, misery to somebody else. right. Yeah. Okay, great question. Great question. Anybody else? Yes, so, uh, Sure. It seems like now, when you talk about slavery, so many of the people that are alive now that were no one alive was a slave. Oh, nobody that was... You're right. Yeah, unless they maybe came from another country where their slavery is still alive and well. Yeah. But uh, it seems like... Here in America, it's like we're the only people that ever had slaves. You know, it's kind of like it hadn't gone on for history. I mean, throughout the history, yeah, throughout the world, right? Yeah, it's on it's on the minds of a lot of people today. I think I think a lot of the uh, um, the equity kinds of things that we hear a lot about inclusion, equity, and diversity is whatever the acronym of that is, is focused on. The idea that we look at society now and we see the haves and the have-nots, we see people that have benefited from uh, uh, rules and laws and banking decisions, all that kind of stuff, that would have elevated one race over another or one uh, area of the country over another, okay? And so to some degree I think there is an effort being made to try to right those wrongs, Okay. But I think the difficulty is that when you try to right wrongs using laws, that ultimately um, that doesn't work as well as if you deal with it from a faith perspective and from the heart perspective in terms of how do I treat you? Do I love my neighbor as myself or do I make distinctions about who is my neighbor and who isn't? Right. And there's a biblical story that goes along with that. And who is my neighbor? Right. And that's where the Good Samaritan story comes from. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, I was just going to say this story about Ham and his cursing it was one of the uh, reasons apartheid took place in South Africa. Oh, that's a great example. There, I didn't. I didn't know that was the linkage. Yeah, it was used as an excuse for apartheid. The, and it, you know it just shows you you can take a Bible verse and twist it and all kinds. That's of- what you can do. And if if see if I'm inclined in terms of evil, that means that I'm going to put myself up here and put you down here. That That's sort of the fundamental uh, aspect of that, okay? Uh, then I'm going to look for Bible passages that will support the idea that because of my race, I'm here, and you're here, and if I can find a Bible verse that would support that, whoa, I'm in heaven, right? Yeah. But but that, I did not know that that was a justification for apartheid in uh, South Africa. I remember reading that when I was a bit younger. When you were a bit younger. <laughs> we won't go there, Bob. We'll just yeah. Okay, thoughts. Yeah, but, uh, closing thoughts that we need to stop for today. I think it's interesting that uh, you know, we use the word focus because it's really what God did right here with Noah, right? Yeah. Because we kind of look at this as the flood as getting rid of sin. As getting rid, we think of that as yeah. getting rid of sin. Yeah. He was a righteous man, his family right? Was right. Righteous, I right. Imagine. Uh-huh. And then right after the flood, and we get rid of all the sin, right? And all these all things, the bad people. And all, yeah. And right after that, we have Ham, and we don't know why it's mm-hmm. so <laughs> drastic, but Ham disrespects his father, right? And their sin. Yeah. Right up they off the boat. Yeah. Now, it also, you know, I'm thinking Noah, because it says like he planted a vineyard. He probably didn't have a whole lot of experience like with, you know, like how much should I ingest? And, you know, maybe that alcohol content was a little bit too good on that batch, you know. So I mean, there could be that aspect of it, too. But, but again, it's just this idea of how imperfect people will often take a perfect thing like God's word and then twist it in order for it to fit my agenda. Okay? And my, I might think my agenda is pure and righteous because I'm over here, or I might think my agenda is pure and righteous I'm over here. And we both have to look at ourselves and say, maybe I'm kind of part of the problem. Maybe I'm twisting it to suit me instead of really taking God's truth for what it is. Okay, good stuff today. Great, great uh, discussion. We'll pick it up next week, and so let's close with prayer. Father, thank you so much for the time that we can share with each other and the time that we can look at God's Word. Uh, God's Word has some parts in it that are sometimes a little embarrassing or shameful for us to look at, and partly because it reveals... Uh, the true nature of us as human beings and why we need you and why we need the gift of the grace that you give to us in your Son, Jesus. Jesus knows all those things about us, and yet He, through you, love us uh, and and watch o- over us each and every day. So I pray to your Lord that in these times of, of life that we're living in, where so many people are so confused about truth and they're so confused about about religion and science and faith and the bible and all those things there's all these conflicting messages we pray that i pray that uh, each of us knowing the truth of god's love for us in jesus that can we can be that shining light in in people around us and that may mean that we live in the tension that may mean that we live in the middle more than we are on the edges but that wherever we are we are living the truth of your love for us in your son, Jesus. So watch over us this week, dear Lord. Protect us from the evil one. Uh, Be with us in our faith as you strengthen that for these times. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.